2: Hello, this is 4th Estate, your weekly discussion panel on all things media and journalism. On the agenda this week, the Hoopla announces it's closing down... A former staffer brags about wasting Rupert Murdoch's money, and John Laws causes yet another controversy. Welcome to this week's program. I'm Rafael Garcia in the host chair, and joining me in the panel today, Cassandra Wilkinson, President of FBI Radio, Alex McKinnon, Assistant Editor at Junkie.com, and on the phone, Heath Aston, Federal Political Correspondent for SMH and The Age. Welcome, everyone.
1: Hi, good to be here.
2: And as always, if you have something to say about what we're discussing, send us a message on Twitter. Our handle is at estate AU. all letters, no numbers. We'll start with a topic that had many sad people over the last week. The news of the death of former Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser brought on tributes from both sides of politics and monopolized media coverage for at least for a couple of days or so. Australia's 22nd Prime Minister fought for multiculturalism and founded SBS, reflecting his strong views on how Australia's migrant communities should be given a voice in media. Alex, how was the tone of the Malcolm Malcolm Fraser death coverage on the whole?
3: Um, I think the coverage initially was trying to find um, just how to cover uh, Malcolm Fraser's political career in his later life. Um, The hook, obviously, was that Malcolm Fraser was a fairly conservative Prime Minister who, after he retired from politics, kind of shifted quite sharply to the left and ended up leaving the Liberal Party, which was a kind of nice bit of trivia for anybody who didn't know. Um, A lot of outlets ran with that and with the Liberal Party's reaction and uh, reactions from people who might not have supported Malcolm Fraser while he was Prime Minister, but who came to find something in common with him after he left politics.
2: Cassandra, do you think he would have been proud of the coverage as a whole?
1: Oh, one suspects he might have um, uh, appreciated the irony of his death knocking out discussion of the Moss report, um, which would have prompted some discussion about the issues that he'd spent so much time trying to bring to light. Um, I do. Th- I, I agree that it was conflicted coverage because for those of us old enough to um, have grown up. E- even in their 80s, Fraser was just shorthand for right-wing conservative. Um, and the change that he's undergone in recent years makes his passing um, meaningful in a way that it would not have been 15 years ago even, let alone, you know, 25.
2: Mm. Heath, did you think the um, the release of the Moss Review was... Um uh, was it ironic that uh, that coincided with the the day of the the death of Malcolm Fraser?
0: Oh look, I think it was more than uh, ironic. It was a cynical um attempt to um to take out the trash on a Friday afternoon and what better time than under the cover of a uh, the passing of a prime minister. Um you know, when when Gough Whitlam passed away, <laughs> everything in Canberra came to a halt and there was nothing uh said for the rest of the day besides condolences for the passing of a Prime Minister we had that with um, a liberal Prime minister and uh, a Liberal government um seized the opportunity to um put out uh, what was a <clears throat> a damaging report really um on uh, Friday afternoon at three o'clock uh, and sure enough it was um a report that would have been destined uh, for most front pages probably not all was um further further back in the um uh, in the newspapers and and obviously uh wasn't um followed up as much as it could be by the electronic media over the weekend that was probably still uh, preoccupied with um, with Malcolm Fraser.
2: Hmm. Um, Malcolm Fraser was passionate about improving the treatment of asylum seekers by Australia, and um, Saturday's Sydney Morning Herald featured a full wraparound of Fraser and Half the inside front cover belonged to the re- reopening of the Lint Cafe, so I think that um, goes back to to your point, Heath, doesn't it? Um, do we think that Fraser himself w- would have wanted the Moss Review to be front and center? Is that is that what you're saying?
0: Well, I think he probably would. I've, nobody would um, would demand the front page for them for their passing, but um, uh, he would have known that um, that was never going to be the case. If we have a, 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 a prime minister, particularly one that was. Uh, involved in one of the most seminal incidents in uh, in, in our Australian political history passing, uh, of course he's going to dominate the coverage. So um, again the, the the government was actually under no compulsion uh, or deadline or date uh, to put that out, even though that uh, the Moss Review I'm talking about uh, even though they said that uh, it had been planned and someone a department official was on the plane to Brisbane uh, even before knowing about Malcolm Fraser's death. I'm not sure how that could have happened because uh, we found out about it at about eight o'clock in the morning, so uh, and that the press conference was at three. Uh, but, um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, I'm sure if, if he was still around and you asked him, uh, Malcolm Fraser would have said that um, the, the Moss review uh, should have been uh, in, under more of a, a microscope.
2: Cassandra, given how passionate he was about the asylum, asylum secret topic, um, how. How pleased do you think he would be or he would have been these days in regards to the representation of asylum seekers in Australian media?
1: Well, I'm I, I, very hesitant to um, assume that I know how another person would feel, particularly someone um, as complex as Malcolm Fraser. But it, he was very clear in his last years about, um, you know, the difference between the liberal ideals that he felt defined the Liberal Party he joined and the conservative ideals which have come to define the Liberal Party as it stands today. And that was certainly captured in his, his campaign uh, against draconian security powers as well as the refugee powers. I mean, a commitment to both um, in freedom and uh, civil liberties as well as freedom of movement. He seemed to have a um, be waging a campaign to resuscitate liberal values in the liberal movement.
3: Alex? It's interesting because um, the government has done this before. You mentioned the Lint Cafe earlier, and during the Sydney siege, the government uh, came under quite a bit of criticism for going ahead with the release of the MyFO report. Um, every other, or well, most other news outlets, donated you know blanket coverage to the Sydney siege. And Tony Abbott's rationale for releasing the MyFO report on that day, as was planned, was uh, that things should continue as normal, um, but they face a lot of backlash for releasing a, a very uh, important and pretty controversial uh, report when so much of the media's attention was distracted.
2: You're listening to Fourth Estate with myself, Rafael Garcia, Alex McKinnon, Cassandra Wilkinson, and Heath Aston. Remember, you can join the conversation on Twitter. Our handle is at Fourth Estate AU. Let's move on now to... Um, a topic that had a lot of people talking um, in the past couple of days, former news.com.au staffer Will Coven, son of veteran ABC reporter Mark Coven, last week penned the story of his time with News, New Corp, News Corp's website, news.com.au, and the story is titled All the Ways I Wasted Rupert Murdoch's Money. In it, Will describes how news.com.au's editorial focus went from primary source interviews to sensationalism, and how his job became about recycling content and moderating comments. In response, Will decided to find out just how much he could slack off his job without getting into trouble. Cassandra, it's pretty clear that Will didn't like the focus of News Corp journalism and was perhaps angry when that encroached on news.com.au. Should he have just quit instead?
1: Oh, I I have been finding the coverage quite interesting. It's often the case that a young person's um, the way that a young person deals with a situation becomes the sort of um, proof point for hypotheses that are posed by all manner of people for all manner of different purposes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and sometimes you remember that you know kids in their twenties, um, you know the rough and tumble of life and affects them in different ways you get angry you get frustrated you have bad jobs you you know you go through those phases of life when you're young where you go from a lot of bad jobs and he vented and um some people thought that that was a great get square with news and other people thought it was indicative of generation wise lack of work ethic (laughs) you know i think uh in the end it didn't mean that much and um you know, turning it into something it's not, uh, it was grist for exactly the kind of journalism that he seemed to be trying to yeah. say that he didn't want to be a part of. Uh,
2: Heath, we'll come to you on this one. How common is it to find other will Covens in newsrooms around Australia?
0: Uh, as in slackers?
2: Well, I'd say so, if that's, if that's the word you <laughs> Look, want to describe it. Uh,
0: they're, they're not as rare as hen's piece, I can tell you that, but... um uh p- although I guess in the last uh four, five, six years um I've noticed that um there's far fewer of them because you just can't get away with it anymore in the uh, in the digital age where um there's virtually no deadlines. the deadline is just can you get it can you get it up as soon as possible uh and also the excess of long term staff that's um <coughs> left the newsrooms um, not quite um stocked the way that uh, they used to be so um uh i i just thought i mean it was an entertaining read and it was a, a it was sort of a little look inside one person's um uh experience inside uh, news corp that he obviously didn't like but um I, I just felt that um he had a he had a valid story there potentially to do with um uh the the, the sort of the factory type conditions in, in some regards uh with this online world of um of churning stories over and you know being the author of, of uh, online of a story that you had no part in actually generating by just um, lifting it from somewhere else now that's been a, a huge topic in in uh, media and on media watch in in the last few months uh, to, to, to 12 months so I, I just think that he he probably had a um a more interesting story if he stuck to to the to, to what he was actually doing in terms of working rather than what he was doing in terms of not working which was um which was slacking off and going to nightclubs and being out in pubs and stuff when he should have been um, uh, or could have been back at um, back at work. So the tone of it, I guess, was always going to get up a few people's noses, particularly in the media and, and you know, whether or not um, he said that he's happy with it and he's not looking for any work in the media and he's got enough work, so um, good luck to him, I guess. But um, it's certainly... Um, Certainly, one of those mini storms that uh, that blew up for a few hours and was was um, done to death on Twitter and and whatnot, and, and probably um, we'll never hear of it again.
2: Alex, did he have, did he have a story?
3: He did, I think, um, and it would have been a pretty. It could have been a like like Heath said, it could have been a much more interesting and valuable read. I think if he'd focused more on uh, the culture of uh, in brackets aggregation, which is basically stealing from other people. Um, that goes on at a lot of websites. Instead of, yeah, again, like Heath said, I racked off to the pub and took a few drugs and look how rebellious I am. Um, Besides all that, there is a really interesting uh, debate to be had about news websites and whether they have any value if they're just lifting stories from other places. Mm -hmm. How common is that practice? I would say... It's pretty common. I, I haven't worked at any major media organizations, but given the the intensity and the stress that is incumbent on everyone who works in one to get a story out first and to make sure that yours is a story that everybody sees, I imagine it's pretty rife. Um, I would love to hear more from Will and from others, actually, about just how prevalent it is and what kind of cultures grow up around it.
2: Cassandra you mentioned earlier that um um you know it's a case of a you know twenty year old who decided to just sort of have a bit of a joke you know but um I, I do know that you didn't you know mean to um generalize you know and it's of, and it's um obviously not a case for us to generalize so is is this a case of you know he was treated like a child therefore he he decided to act like a child
1: I don't know i I thought his comments on umbrella were reasonably thoughtful um He seems to have been like most of the 20-year-old journalists I've worked with, extremely hardworking, very ambitious. Um, He got put into a position in the organisation where he felt like he couldn't express himself or fulfil his ambitions anymore. Um, And, you know, on the way out the door, tipped over a vase. Mm. And I think for a lot of people who wish that someone would write the inside story on the death of real journalism it might be a disappointment that he didn't do that but it wasn't his responsibility to do that I think it's I'd love to read that story too the one that (laughs) that you guys want to read but I also think you know he's entitled to be that guy who on the way out the door just kicked somebody's chair over and to not have everyone define him as a person or his future career prospects because of it.
2: You're listening to Fourth Estate with myself, Rafael Garcia, Alex McKinnon, Cassandra Wilkinson, and Heath Aston. Radio shock jock John Laws is causing controversy again for his comments on air. This time he told an 80-year-old man who had been sexually abused when he was a child that he shouldn't be a wet blanket and should go to the pub and have a lemonade. If you haven't had the chance to, um, to listen to the re- recording from this conversation, uh, we'll play a short, um, a short grab now. Take a listen.
0: Well, uh, how old were you? You were 11 years old. 11 years of age, age and yes. Yeah. Did you scream? Did I what? Did you scream? Scream? Yeah. Did you yell out? Well, I don't think it was very, very funny, I can tell you. I'm not saying it's funny. I'm saying, did you scream in fright? I didn't say, did you scream with laughter? I said, did you did you yell out? Stop that, you bastard. Did you lash out with your fists? Did you hit him? No, no, probably not. No, probably not. I see. And how many times did it happen?
1: It happened a few times with him.
2: Okay, and that's probably enough there. I guess you get the gist. This goes on for several several minutes. Um, Cassandra, what comes to your mind when you hear this interaction on radio?
1: I just I think John Laws has done an outstanding job of demonstrating to us all why people of that generation did not go to the police. I mean, he basically asked that guy how short his skirt was for 10 minutes.
2: Yeah, exactly. Is this uh, another case of blaming the victim, Alex?
3: Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, John Laws is a huge prick, and he's been kind of intentionally provoking stuff like this to greater or lesser extents as long as he's been on air. Um, in a kind of, I guess now he's just trying to stay relevant in whatever way he can. Heath, what
2: what comes to mind when you hear um Grab?
3: Uh look, I, I just
0: thought it was it was um disappointing, um, the the way he went about that. I compare it to um I think when Kyle Sandilands asked that girl um the the the, the question about um her a sexual assault on her, whether she'd um uh, I can't remember what the exact words were though they were equally as offensive whether she'd enjoyed it or whether she she'd sort of said anything or I can't remember exactly what it was, but that ranks up there with that, and um, it's just another reminder. Um, after that, uh, his performance on uh, on seven thirty with his with his um, his Bundy and Coke in hand, um, that that um, John's probably um, seen the best of uh, what was a great career. But the the high point of his career was, you know, back in the the sixties, seventies, and eighties, when when this sort of stuff, like the caller was saying, was was swept under the carpet. He went to the police in the nineteen sixties. Um, John Morse appears to have been vilifying him for not lashing out, not taking up and, and, and punching whoever it was in, in the face. He said, you're a, "You're a teenager. You should have been big by then." Um, it was just, it just um, completely grated against um, what uh, you know where society has been going on um, on these sort of things and, and the support that people need. Uh, so yeah, like I said, a, a disappointing. Um, uh, <clears throat> potentially uh, another end to, um, to well, we don't know when he's going to retire next, but um, uh, I think it may well be um, a sign that um, the time is is right again for John Laws to uh, to retire.
2: Mm. Cassandra Heath mentioned that this doesn't seem to be an isolated incident. You know, referred back to um, the, the the famous or the infamous Carl Sandlin's episode as well. Um, what sort of um, message does 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 this end when, um, you know, it's not uncommon for us to, um, to, to treat, you know, those who actually speak out about sexual abuse in this manner?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think it reminds us how much work feminists have had to do over the last, you know, really hundreds of years to get rape recognised as a crime against both women and men. And you know the the struggle that that so many activists went through for so long to have people accept that you know people didn't there was no consent involved in an assault, whether it's you know an eleven year old kid who John Laws thinks could have fought back or whether it's rape in marriage or whether it's assault in a park or whatever it is. The idea of victim blaming um, is something that it's really only in the last couple of decades that we've come to terms with where police and law enforcement agencies and to a growing extent now the media and public opinions beginning to shift and say well actually let's examine the behavior of the perpetrator the victim's behavior is actually irrelevant in this situation but you know someone like john laws who you know as alex said comes from an era when things were different reminds us how far we've come and how much further we have to go i think
3: i use slightly stronger words than that but i'll take
1: (laughs) it
2: perhaps in not so strong words alex um do you think that um, someone who was listening to the call at the time perhaps and and um, had a similar experience would they feel less inclined to come forward and speak about it
3: well, with something as potentially serious as, you know, child sexual abuse, obviously you don't really want to speculate, but it does play into um, this perception, I suppose, it, into society's broader perce- perception of how we deal with people who find themselves on the receiving end of assault, sexual assault, physical assault, whatever it may be. Um, the Australia Institute released a report a few weeks ago detailing the levels of street harassment that women face just walking around um, and the numbers are are off the charts. I think something like 83% of women have experienced sexual assault in public at least once. Um, And I think things like this, that kind of contempt for victims and for people who, through no fault of their own, find themselves in hugely traumatic and upsetting situations. Um, Coming from people like John Laws, who have a huge amount of influence. We can't deny that they do. That does have real-life consequences in the world.
2: Heath, let's come back to you on this one. Alan Jones survived an advertiser exodus, if you like, back in 2012 when campaigners took him to task over his comments over um, the then PM, Julia Gillard. But both are still going. So how much of an impact can something like that have?
0: Uh, I don't know and I haven't heard any talk that um that, that advertisers would be pulling out of um two S M. But then again two S M is not exactly um uh, up there with your Alan Joneses and two G Bs and whatever in terms of um pulling it, pulling the um the dollars from, from advertisers. So um I, I'm not sure though obviously um people like Alan Jones have uh, and John Moore's in fact have survived um cash for comment and other different um scandals and um uh, I think it's probably um, not going to be enough to, um, to to force any change on um, on John Laws and the way he, he operates. Um, but like I said before, it's, um, at, at some level, uh, maybe it might be a little reminder to him that, um, that uh, it's time to um, to just enjoy retirement. Because um, I mean, as Cassandra said, it's just it's, it's a mark of, of of how things have changed and how um, if you were. If you're as, uh, you know, uh, been around as long as he has, then potentially time has actually um, passed you, um, overtaken you. And so, um, but uh, I imagine he'll, be, uh, he'll keep on keeping on.
2: You're listening to Fourth Estate. I'm Rafael Garcia with Alex McKinnon, Cassandra Wilkinson and Heath Aston. Women's site The Hoopla announced they are closing down after they experienced slow growth. This is largely being blamed on a hard paywall model they initially started with. Apparently, by the time they switched over to a a freemium model, it was too late. Alex, have we got the paywall formula
3: right? We? As in media. (laughs) Well, there are a few different forms, I guess. Um, The Herald uh, lets you read 30 uh, free articles a month. The Australian has much stricter um, limits in place with its content. And inexplicably, the Daily Telegraph will only let you read three articles before they... Uh, want to charge you for the wonderful things that they put out Um, I guess it's, uh, no one quite knows whether or not it's working yet Um, the major newspapers keep their figures very close to their chest um, and I don't think even they quite know uh, whether it's going to succeed in the long term, everyone's trying to take content that was previously free for everyone and put uh, put a price on it and it's taken a, l- a little bit of time for people to get used to that.
2: Cassandra, it, it's, it seems a bit unusual that at the same time that the Hoopla is closing down there were also a few announcements about other outlets that are focusing on um, the female markets, though, including one from News Corp. Um, where could the Hoopla have gone wrong? <laughs>
1: um, I think prob- possibly because the Hoopla wasn't focusing on the female market. It was writing great content that was written by and for women but it wasn't um, it wasn't a distribution system for advertising the way some content that's described as women's content um, is I think Wendy Harm is amazing. I mean, the fact is there was no and still is no formula for making money out of media in the digital age. She was one of the first entrepreneurs who went out there, took her extraordinary national profile and her advertising market with her into Uncharted Waters. Um, and instead of doing something which she could have given her popularity, doing something more mainstream, she chose to do something... Um, you know in keeping with her personal values carve out a space for women you know introduced us to people like Corinne Grant who are terrific writers and who I hope will find other places to um, to put their wares up I think she's done an extraordinary job and to characterize this as um, as a failure built on poor judgment um, I don't think is, is a fair way to look at what Wendy Harmer has achieved and you know if Finally, she hasn't been able to sustain this after several efforts at innovation, after being one of the few online pioneers to pay writers, and hooray for that. Um, you know, I I think she deserves to be seen as a pioneer and not a failure.
2: Heath, just brief, briefly from you on this one, we only have about 30 seconds or so. Where, where have they wrong, gone wrong?
0: Uh, well, like Cassandra says, I don't think they have gone wrong. I don't think that... Um uh, any any um, uh, digital-based um, media um, offering that's, that's lasted four years could really be, be called a failure. Um, it's, it's such a fast-flowing market and we've got new entrants. Uh, you've got the Daily Mail and the Guardian and, and all sorts setting up, Huffington Post coming to Australia. Uh, it's a brutal, brutal game and, and I think she's done well as, as well.
2: Thank you very much for that. That's it from us on Fourth Estate this week. Don't forget, you can check out all of our podcasts on the 2SCR website, and you can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you to our guests, Alex McKinnon from Junkie.com. Pleasure. Cassandra Wilkinson from FBI Radio. Thank you. And Heath Aston from Fairfax. Thanks, Raf. Thank you, Heath. I'm Rafael Garcia. We'll be back at the same time next week. Until then, have a great week.